The balance of power on Capitol Hill remains undecided this morning, with Republicans making some gains, but there's been no apparent red wave so far. It's Wednesday, November 9th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, results and analysis of the midterm election nationwide. The Senate races in Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona, and Nevada are all too close to call right now. In Pennsylvania, Democrat John Fetterman won his race against Republican Mehmet Oz. Here in Massachusetts, Maura Healy makes history by winning the race for governor. I stand before you tonight proud to be the first woman and the first gay person ever elected governor of Massachusetts. Andrea Campbell will be the first black woman to serve as Massachusetts Attorney General. Three of the four ballot questions in Massachusetts remain too close to call, including the so-called millionaire's tax. Sunny today in the 50s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. It's not clear this morning which party will control the Senate and the House after midterm voting concluded yesterday. And NPR's Giles Snyder reports prospects for a Republican takeover of the Senate may not become clear for a while. Democrats in Pennsylvania got a boost when John Fetterman claimed victory over his Republican opponent, Mehmet Oz. Fetterman's win is critical to the party's chances of holding the Senate, but competitive races are still playing out in Arizona and Wisconsin. And in Georgia, the race between Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker looks like it's headed to a runoff in December. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. And there were several ballot initiatives approved by voters, including the right to an abortion. People in Vermont, Michigan, and California voted to change their state's constitution to codify the right to the service. In one of the most watched governor's races in the country, Wisconsin Democrat incumbent Tony Evers has won re-election over Republican businessman Tim Michaels. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben has more. In his victory speech, Evers told the crowd that he has always run on keeping his promises and working hard. That's who I am, folks, and that's what I've always been. Some people call it boring, but you know what, Wisconsin, as it turns out, boring wins. Among Evers' main issues on the stump were public education and reproductive rights. He also touted his record of vetoing bills from the state's Republican-led legislature, which passed several bills attempting to tighten the state's voting laws. That legislature has long been expected to remain in Republican hands after this election. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News, Madison. And vote counting is still going on in Nevada, where the races for Senate, Governor, and the House are on the line. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports due to the volume of mail-in ballots, the results might not come in for days. Democratic candidates in Nevada, including Governor Steve Sisolak, are telling supporters that final results might not come in until the end of the week. The Senate was going to be close, and it is. We ask you to please, please be patient. We need to make sure that every single vote is counted. Both Sisolak and incumbent Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto are in tight races to keep their seats. And whether Cortez Masto can hold on to her seat will help determine if Democrats can keep their slim majority in the Senate. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Las Vegas. 
April financial markets, Asian markets were lower by the close. The Nikkei, the main market in Japan, down more than a half percent. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong down 1.2 percent. U.S. futures contracts are also trading lower this morning. Dow futures down about three-tenths. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi. Democrat Maura Healey made history last night. She became the first elected female governor of Massachusetts, and she'll be the first openly lesbian governor elected nationwide. Healey defeated Republican Jeff Deal by a 28-point margin. WBOR's Anthony Brooks reports. Healy overwhelmed Deal, the AP called the race as soon as polls closed. The victory made Healy and her running mate Kim Driscoll the nation's first all-female governor-lieutenant governor ticket to win. Last night, Healy said she had a message for every girl and every young LGBTQ person. I hope tonight shows you that you can be whatever, whoever you want to be. Democratic women won five out of six constitutional offices. Among them, Andrea Campbell was elected the state's first African-American attorney general. Democrat Bill Galvin won an unprecedented eighth term as secretary of state. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. More now on the win by Democrat Andrea Campbell, who is a former Boston city councilor who ran unsuccessfully for mayor last year. In her victory speech, she promised to work to protect women's rights and address violence. We will defend our common sense gun laws, invest in organizations, invest in organizations that are breaking cycles of violence, not only in Boston, but every community that is dealing with violence. Campbell beat Republican Jay McMahon by a 25 point margin. Most of the ballot questions in Massachusetts are still too close to call. Results right now show question one, the so-called millionaire's tax, would pass by a narrow margin. Question four, which would allow undocumented immigrants to apply for driver's licenses, is also leaning toward approval. The only one called so far is question two. Voters approve the measure to require dental insurers to spend most of customer premiums on patient care. In some of the other key races, Democrat Diana DiZaglio won the race for state auditor. In Bristol County, Republican Sheriff Thomas Hodgson conceded defeat in a close race against Democrat Paul Hero. And Plymouth District Attorney Republican Timothy Cruz appears headed toward another term in office. Get a closer look at all the local and national election results at WBWAR.org. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series. Broadway's Jessica Vosk pays tribute to Sondheim, Judy Garland, Elton John, and more. November 11th at Symphony Hall. CelebritySeries.org. The Celtics are back home tonight to play the Detroit Pistons. And in your forecast, it'll be sunny today with high in the lower 50s, clear overnight with temperatures in the upper 30s, sunny tomorrow, and in the 60s. We could get some rain on Friday. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include Paramount Network. Yellowstone returns with its season five premiere, showcasing that power has a price. Starring Kevin Costner, Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Paramount Network. of 
Massachusetts. Thank you, Arkansas. Thank you, Georgia. <laughs> Thank you, Daddy. It has been a very exciting night. We have uh, some races that are hot and heavy, and we're all watching them here. Health care is a fundamental human right. It saved my life, and it should all be there for you when you ever should need it. And you know what we call people who are black and white and Hispanic and Asian and are men and are women and come from other countries? You know what we call them in Florida? We call them Americans. And while we may not write the story today, there will always be another chapter. The people have delivered their verdict. Freedom is here to stay. Some of the voices of the 2022 election on Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. Votes from several states are still coming in at this hour. So control of the U.S. House and the Senate still up in the air. Georgia is one of the states that we are waiting on and paying close attention to. We do know that Republican Governor Brian Kemp has won re-election there. He beat Democrat Stacey Abrams, who has conceded defeat. This was a rematch with the same outcome of the race four years ago. But we don't yet know who will win the race for the U.S. Senate in Georgia. It appears that the race between Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock and his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker, is headed for a runoff. With us now, WABE's Sam Gringlis. He joins us from Atlanta. Good morning, Sam. Hey, Rachel. So let's start with what we know. The governor's race between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. What can you tell us there? Well, uh, Governor Kemp actually improved his margin over the race four years ago when they last went head to head. Uh, Abrams, as you mentioned, conceded defeat uh, fairly early in the night. And uh, this was actually a bit of a departure from the Senate race, as you mentioned. Uh, That race is way tighter and is still up in the air. What did we hear from the candidates last night? So I spent my night uh, well into the morning, actually, at Warnock headquarters in downtown Atlanta. And just about before 2 a.m., the senator came out for one last update of the night. I may be a a little tired for now. (laughs) But whether it's later tonight or tomorrow or four weeks from now, we will hear from the people of Georgia. And, you know, this is what we heard from uh, Herschel Walker, the Republican Senate nominee, too, gearing up for being in this for the long haul. So what does that look like, a runoff, Sam? We should remind people Raphael Warnock actually won this seat in a runoff election two years ago. Yeah. So here in Georgia, if candidates do not top 50 percent of the vote, they end up in a runoff, which will be on December 6th, four weeks from now. So number one, that means four more weeks likely of campaigning. If we end up in this runoff zone, that means tons of money, surrogates flooding into the state. And, you know, if it is like it was, uh, you know, in the last cycle when control of the Senate hinges on Georgia. We Mm -hmm. don't know that yet. Uh, That's just going to amp up the intensity in this state. But considering the margin by which Brian Kemp won that governor's race and how close uh, the Senate race is, Warnock doing doing quite well, does that mean some voters chose a Republican for governor and a Democrat for Senate and split their vote? Yeah, it absolutely does. And this is a dynamic that we were already starting to see play out in polls leading up to this race and talking to voters on the trail. I met plenty of people who were kind of uncomfortable with Herschel Walker. He has a lot of baggage that comes with him as a candidate. And so they went ahead and split their split their ticket, something that we don't see a whole lot these days. Will voters change their calculus in a runoff when their vote could end up determining the control of the U.S. Senate? It's totally possible. And plus, you throw in the dynamic that, you know, former President Donald Trump 
is weighing announcing a bid for the presidency again. And that's a whole nother factor to throw in that shakes up this race for another four weeks. Right. Okay. we'll wait on that final result from Georgia reporter Sam Greenglass from member station WABE in Atlanta. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Rachel. The people watching the election results include former Democratic Senator Doug Jones of Alabama, who's on the line. Senator, welcome back. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be with you. What do you make of people splitting their tickets in Georgia? The Senate race is very, very close. The governor's race was not. Well, I wish more people had done it. Um, I, I really, you know, I, I worry sometimes that we're moving into a parliamentary system where people are voting parties uh, instead of candidates. But what we saw clearly uh, in that race and other races, uh, people were splitting their ticket. And, and that's reflective of the candidates themselves and who they are, the race they're running. Uh, so, I, you know, from, in Georgia, I'm just incredibly encouraged. How do you think Democrats have managed to keep this close? And I want to stop for a moment to put this in perspective. If people are just waking up, it is a midterm when the party out of power normally does very well. Republicans are still in a good position to capture the House, albeit narrowly. They still have a good chance to capture the Senate, but they did not get the dominating performance that many had hoped for. How do you think your party has managed to hold up in some places? Because I think we've delivered over the last two years. I think President Biden has absolutely delivered on things that he ran on, the things that the American people are wanting. And I think that, quite frankly, that some of the things that they have talked about with the economy and jobs, um, this, is, this economy has been a mixed bag. Inflation has been high, but yet people are working. We've rec- you know, President Biden has created more jobs uh, than any president in recent memory. Uh, and I, that's all important, I think, for folks. And they were looking at the alternative. And the plans for the alter- from the alternatives are essentially either no plans or they're going to de- try to do something, uh, do away with Social Security, do away with Medicare. So, you know, people in, in this country want folks that are going to be working for them. And I think Democrats have delivered on that a lot better than people gave us credit for. Are Democrats lucky that Republicans nominated flawed candidates in many races? Of course they are. I mean, you know, but look, that was the Republicans' choice. The Democrats, except in a couple of races, didn't have anything to do with that, which, by the way, Steve, I don't agree with Democrats doing that. But, yeah, there were clearly there were flawed candidates uh, in, in this race, and Democrats did benefit from that. But that's the American system. Republicans picked those candidates uh, in each of these states. Democrats didn't. Well, let's think about the runoff that seems likely in Georgia, although it has not been formally declared. We have this scenario in which we don't know for sure, but it's possible control of the United States Senate would be on the line or something very close to that. In this runoff over the coming weeks, it is possible that Donald Trump has declared his presidential campaign. He did publicly say, I'm going to announce something on November 15th. What does that race look like over the next several weeks if it unfolds that way? You know, first of all, it's going to be a ton of money. You're going to see the airwaves. You're going to see so much money uh, coming into uh, Georgia once again uh, for potential control of the United States Senate. But at the end of the day, though, at the end of the day, I think Raphael Warnock has shown the strength that he needs to win this race. Uh, More people will will come that way because of his record versus uh, Herschel Walker, who, uh, quite frankly, I, I don't think has demonstrated that he um, deserves to be in the United States Senate. His background, everything he's done, and the fact, Stephen, and, and this has not really gone through, in my opinion, as much as I think it should, the fact that he clearly is not leveling with the uh, people of Georgia. Uh, you talk about his abor- the abortions that he paid for, those kind of well, things. The fact is people want somebody who is 
you know, who levels with them and they can depend on and depend on their work. And all that will be, and all that, that with and all that will be argued, of course, in the weeks ahead if this runoff comes to pass. Former Democratic Senator Doug Jones of Alabama, thanks so much. My pleasure, Steve. We just heard Doug Jones talk about the money expected to flood into a possible runoff in the Georgia Senate race. That's something Trevor Potter thinks about a lot. He is a Republican former chair of the Federal Election Commission. He's also the founder and president of the Nonpartisan Campaign Legal Center. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks. Good morning. I'm going to talk to you about the money in a second, but let's just talk about the actual voting. Elections seem to have gone pretty smoothly this midterms. Was there anything that gave you pause? Well, and that was given all the concerns about potential uh, demonstrations or violence at the polls and uh, the hyper attention to how everything uh, would be conducted. That was a very happy outcome yesterday. Uh, there were some isolated incidents, as there always are, of you know machines not doing what they're supposed to because of software questions that can be corrected, uh, running out of paper ballots, things like that. Mm. But in a country with uh, almost a million election workers uh, and uh, the, the tens of thousands of polling places we have, it appears to have been a, a pretty smooth election, uh, although, of course, we still have the counting process uh, ahead of us in many states. Let's talk about the money. So much money. I mean, more than $9 billion is expected to have been spent overall in these midterms. In Pennsylvania, TV ads topped $241 million. In Georgia, TV ads, $258 million. Given all that, have you seen any campaign campaign finance irregularities in this election season? Well, the, the, the biggest one uh, just staring us in the face that no one talks about is that uh, the McCain-Feingold reform law of 20 years ago was supposed to prevent members of Congress from raising large sums of unregulated money, of unlimited money. Uh, and yet we see uh, super PACs, uh, political groups associated with both le- leaders of both parties uh, out there raising literally hundreds of millions of dollars for groups that uh, the press always refers to as the McConnell Super PAC or the Schumer PAC, we just and have, spending it in these races. We just have a few seconds. Oh, how do you change that? How do you fix things before the presidential election? Well, we need to continue to strengthen the Federal Election Commission. It needs to enforce the law. Uh, groups like mine, the Campaign Legal Center, sue them regularly when they're not enforcing the law because disclosure is an important part of this. Yeah. And uh, limits on what uh, members of Congress do to raise this outside money uh, is is important. Plus, we saw just waves of uh, secret money spent in these elections yeah. by groups that don't report their donors at all. An important thing to follow up on. We appreciate your time. Former FEC Chairman Trevor Potter, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. Stay with 90.9 WBUR today as we make sense of the midterm vote. You can check remaining vote counts at WBUR.org and keep listening to WBUR and NPR for analysis, context, and the latest on what comes next. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, a focus on the election results in Ohio, where Hillbilly Elegy author J.D. Vance has won a U.S. Senate seat. It's 719. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru. 
where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com. I'm Robin Young. The Supreme Court will hear a case that may change the way adoptions of Native American children are handled. Under the Indian Child Welfare Act, when a Native American child is available for adoption, priority must be given to tribal members, but a white foster family is fighting that. Next time, here and now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny and low 50s today, mostly clear tonight and around 40 tomorrow, sunny and in the lower 60s. There's a chance of rain on Friday, but it will have a high near 70. It's 36 degrees in Boston at Support for NPR comes from this station and from Netflix presenting Is That Black Enough For You? From writer and director Elvis Mitchell comes a love letter to black cinema of the 70s, celebrating the films and talent that changed the game. On Netflix, November 11th. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Maryland voters returned their governor's mansion to Democrats last night. Wes Moore won the office over Republican Dan Cox, and Governor-elect Moore is on the line. Governor, welcome. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Thank you. And congratulations to you. You're hired. Now you have to do the job. (laughs) What have voters told you that they want, do you think? I think voters have uh, told me in a, in a pretty resounding fashion that uh, that they are ready for us to move fast. Uh, they're ready for Maryland to be bold, but they're ready for Maryland to move together. Uh, I think people are tired of being at each other's throats. I think people are tired of the days of caring more about if it, uh, who, who came up with the idea than is it a good idea. Marylanders are ready to come together, and, uh, and that's exactly the kind of leadership that I'm ready to provide. Well, let's talk about that because you have a blue state where Democrats outnumber Republicans, but for recent years you've had a Republican governor. Larry Hogan, who was very, very popular, could not run again because of term limits. Is there something specific that Governor Hogan did that you would expect, although you're in the different party, you would expect to continue? Well, I think uh, I applaud Governor Hogan because he was early and very full-throated on the danger uh, of this MAGA movement. Uh, on this idea of, of, of election denying and, and, and the people who are, uh, who frankly are just, you know, just core threats to uh, the basics of democracy. He was early about that. He was full-throated about it, and I appreciate that. And, and I think that when you look at how we campaigned, well, we campaigned across the entire state in, in traditionally Republican areas, Democratic areas, independent areas. It didn't matter to us. 
because, uh, you know, as I told people on the campaign trail, you know, you know, a question I never once asked my soldiers when I was leading soldiers in combat in Afghanistan, uh, I never asked them what's their political party. And, and I think that that resonated with Marylanders because I think Marylanders are ready for an idea that we can actually unify around issues and not around partisan identification. Are you saying to Republican voters, people who voted for your opponent, that you intend to win them over in the next four years? 100 percent. The, the message is I plan on being your governor, too. Uh, and and as we were going around the different parts of uh, the different parts of the state, the things that we kept on hearing from people about that we want to focus on making sure we have 21st century education uh, and 21st century schools that that we can uh, actually get the issue of public safety and prioritize it, making sure we have police force that move with uh, with uh, with appropriate intensity and absolute integrity and full accountability. The, the fact that they want our economy to go and that our state should be more competitive but also more equitable, and that's not a choice. We can do both. You know, these are all things that we were campaigning on, and I think that's something that resonated with, with Republicans around the state as well. Governor-elect, I want to note the historic nature of your election. Maryland, as some people will know, was in the 1800s a slave state. It is the state where Frederick Douglass grew up and escaped from. I believe it's the state of Harriet Tubman as well. That's right. And now you have been elected the first black governor of Maryland. What does that mean to you? It's humbling. Uh, it's humbling because, uh, you know, Maryland does have a very complicated his- uh, you know, history uh, with, the issue of, with the issue of race. But I, I think that while it is humbling uh, that, you know, that I am the, the, the first black governor in the history of the, of the state of Maryland, I also know that that's not the reason that I ran. Uh, you know, I, I, I did not run to make history. We ran because we have real core issues uh, that we want to address. Like, we want to make child poverty history. Uh, we want to make the wealth gap history. We want to make economic and educational disparity history. And so it's, it's very humbling for me, the, the historic nature of the campaign. And I know the shoulders that I stand on. But I think uh, the assignment uh, is that we have to go out there and right now and just go do the job and do the work. There has been so much debate in this country about how to teach in schools the subject of slavery, the subject of racism in the United States. To the extent that you can influence that in Maryland, what do you want to be taught in Maryland schools? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, and there's uh, there's there's uh, there's levels of, of restrictions that you're going to have because a lot of this is going to be local issues. And I know even in the state of Maryland, things like CRT, uh, despite you know you watched uh, you know political forces trying to introduce as trying to stop that, even though it's not even being taught in the state of Maryland, uh, it is important that our children do understand understand our history. You know, loving your country does not mean lying about its history, and it's important that all of our children do have a sense of understanding about the the the, the the, the nature and the history, but also just the beautiful evolution of our country. We have a country we're proud of, and I think it's important for all children to understand, uh, all, understand all aspects of it. Wes Moore is governor-elect of Maryland. Governor-elect Moore, congratulations once again, and thanks for taking the time. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Hope you get some sleep. You see, bye-bye. We're going to bring in NPR correspondent Danielle Kurtzleben, who is with us from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and in studio, correspondent Claudia Gorsalis. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thank you much. Yes, of course. So we just heard from Wes Moore, uh, the governor-elect in the state of Maryland, in the state of Maryland, the first black governor of that state. He took over from a previous governor, a Republican, Larry Hogan. Wes Moore suggesting there that Marylanders voted for him regardless of political party. Danielle, voters in Wisconsin didn't necessarily vote down the party line either, did they? 
Right. At, at least to some degree, it appears there may have been some crossover voting because we had these two big statewide or were there were several big statewide races, but the two big ones that a lot of people are watching uh, are governor and senator. Now, Governor Tony Evers, the Democratic incumbent, uh, has won, and it appears that he will win by potentially two or three points. Uh, meanwhile, the Senate race is between incumbent Republican Ron Johnson and Democrat uh, Mandela Barnes. Ron Johnson, uh, as of right now, that race has not been called, but Ron Johnson uh, is ahead by a little over a point. So there's a gap in there that implies that, you know, perhaps a, uh, at least a few people did some crossover voting or maybe, maybe some people sat out one race or the other. Mm -hmm. So in terms of what happened, it you know, you can't discount incumbency because, of course, uh, Johnson and Evers are both known right. quantities. Um, but also, I, one thing is that Johnson really attacked Barnes hard, especially on crime. And Milwaukee does have a, have a fair amount of crime. So the question is if those uh, attacks stuck. I want to pivot, Claudia, just very briefly take a step back. Historically, the party out of power loses in the midterms, often by a lot. Republicans had been predicting a red wave. That didn't happen. What's to account for that? Right. This was a very big moment in terms of what we saw. And then also looking at the wider picture here, President Biden could make a statement today. We will see. They have been noncommittal. But he called all these Democratic winners last night, 36 in all that he could reach. And so we'll see what's to come. NPR's Claudia Grisales and NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben. Thanks to you both. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You hear them on NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the many ways that women made history in Massachusetts last night. It's 729. Coming to WBUR City Space on Tuesday, November 15th, veteran Washington Post journalist Margaret Sullivan will discuss her new book, Newsroom Confidential. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The votes are still being counted in 64 House races and five in the Senate. The control of Congress come January remains unclear this morning. Senate contests are too close to call in states that include Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, and Georgia. In Georgia, the race between incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker could go to a December runoff. In Pennsylvania, Democrat John Fetterman defeated Republican Mehmet Oz in that state's Senate race. NPR's Laura Benchoff says it was among the most closely watched contests. This race in particular was very close. It got tons of attention and outside funding. It was actually the most expensive Senate race this year, and there was money just pouring into attack ads in these final weeks. In Ohio, Republican J.D. Vance defeated Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan in the Senate race there. NPR's Miles Parks says in-person voting on Election Day was largely uneventful, though there were some isolated issues. 
The most high-profile instance was in Maricopa County, Arizona, where a number of ballot tabulators malfunctioned due to a printer error. It was fixed after a couple hours, but we saw members on the far right really immediately start pushing that this was some evidence of some fraud conspiracy, including the Republican um, governor candidate, Carrie Lake. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Democrat Maura Healey will be the next governor of Massachusetts. She easily beat Republican Jeff Deal in yesterday's election. Healey is the first woman elected governor of the state. She'll also be the nation's first openly lesbian governor. Healey had a message for young girls and young LGBTQ people in her victory speech. Nothing and no one can ever get in your way except your own imagination, and that's not going to happen. To all of you, and to all of you out there, with the help of so many, we made history, didn't we? Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll was elected lieutenant governor. We'll have more on Healy's win coming up in a few minutes here on Morning Edition. The nine members of the state's all-Democratic congressional delegation have won re-election. In most races, there were large margins between the Democratic winners and Republican challengers. Winners include Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, who got nearly 85 percent of the vote. Three of the four ballot questions in Massachusetts remain too close to call. The only one called so far is question two. Voters approved a measure to require dental insurance companies to spend most of customer premiums on patient care. Approval of question one, which would impose a surtax on incomes over $1 million, is ahead by a narrow margin right now. Get a breakdown of all the races at WBUR.org. It's 733. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. The Celtics will go for their fourth straight win tonight as they host the Detroit Pistons. And in your forecast, we'll have clear skies and low 50s today. Still clear tonight, falling to around 40. Sunny again tomorrow in the low 60s. And then we end the week with a cloudy day near 70 with a chance of rain. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 7.33. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at raymondjames.com. This is NPR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Democrat Maura Healey scored a decisive and historic victory last night, becoming the state's first elected female and first openly gay governor. I'll be a governor for everyone. And and I'll work with anyone who's up for making a difference in this state. 
The Massachusetts Attorney General overwhelmed her Republican opponent, former state rep Jeff Deal. The Associated Press called the race minutes after the polls closed, and Deal conceded about three hours later. WBUR's senior political reporter Anthony Brooks joins us now for more on what was a big night politically for women in Massachusetts. Good morning, Anthony. Hey, good morning, Rupa. So Healy's win was largely expected, right? So was there anything surprising about what happened in that race last night? Well, Healy was heavily favored. So yeah, she was expected to win. But but I think what was surprising was how quickly the race was called. And it was a sign of just how overwhelming her victory was. Healy won in cities from Boston to Worcester to Springfield. She carried small towns from Cape Cod to Western Massachusetts. You know, I was also struck by what she said in her speech last night and and how she really leaned into the historic significance of her victory as, as the first elected female and first openly gay governor. She said she had a message for every girl and every young LGBTQ person. I hope tonight shows you that you can be whatever, whoever you want to be. And Rupa, that was a theme she talked about during her campaign. She'd say representation matters and seeing is believing. And and that she was often moved when members of the LGBT community told her that her success gave them comfort. Hmm. And we can't say it enough, right? It was a big night for women. Can you tell us about the others? Right, it really was. Healy led a slate of five women uh, running for the state's constitutional offices, and all five prevailed. That includes Kim Driscoll, Healy's running mate, who will be the next lieutenant governor, and Andrea Campbell, the former Boston City Councilor, who will become the state's first black female attorney general. Here's Campbell's speaking last night. We will defend our common sense gun laws, invest in organizations, invest in organizations that are breaking cycles of violence, not only in Boston, but every community that is dealing with violence. And the other w- women who prevailed were Democrat Diana DiZaglio. She beat Republican Anthony Amore in the race to be state auditor. And Deb Goldberg won her race for state treasurer, defeating the libertarian candidate Chris Crawford. And the only man who won statewide was William Galvin, also a Democrat, who was reelected to an unprecedented eighth term as Secretary of State, as, as Secretary of the Commonwealth. Uh, he beat Republican Rayla Campbell. You know, it was such a big night for women. It's worth talking about what it took to get here. How historic was it? Why was it so historic? Well, it was really historic. You know, I spoke recently to Jesse Mermel, who ran unsuccessfully for Congress in 2020. She also served as executive director of the Massachusetts Women's Political Caucus, which works to increase the number of women in elected office. And Mermel pointed out that only nine women have served in constitutional offices in the state's wow. entire history. That's nine women in 242 years. Wow. And here we are about to have nearly every statewide office in the Commonwealth held by uh, a woman. But Mermel also pointed out that women uh, still represent only about a quarter of state legislators in Massachusetts and are still underrepresented in public offices like mayor and, and city offices, which, which represent a pipeline to higher office. So there's more work to do. But uh, yesterday was a significant milestone. Okay. And not surprisingly, it was a tough night for Massachusetts Republicans. What are the consequences of Jeff Deal's loss 
on the state GOP. Yeah, well, it seems pretty dire. I mean, Republicans represent less than 9% of registered voters in the state. With Healy's victory, they are now shut out of statewide office. There isn't a single Republican in the state's congressional delegation, and they face Democratic supermajorities in the state legislature. State GOP Chairman Jim Lyons has been the leader of the Trump wing of the party, but this election demonstrated that a Trump-endorsed candidate like Deal, you know, really struggles in Massachusetts. And the formula for Republican success in the state has traditionally been fiscally conservative, socially liberal candidates like Charlie Baker, like Mitt Romney, like William Weld. So after yesterday, you'd think there'd be some kind of reckoning within the Republican Party about this before it becomes completely irrelevant. Hmm. WBUR senior political reporter Anthony Brooks, thank you so much for working all night and for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Rupa. Thank you. For a closer look at all the results in the Massachusetts races, check out WBUR.org. And you should know that Morning Edition will run for an extra hour today until 10 a.m. to bring you all of the results and analysis of the election results. Up next, we'll focus on what happened in Nevada and Wisconsin. Some other stories making news on this Wednesday morning. Teachers and other educational professionals in Melrose are planning to do what's known as work to rule today. That means educators will not come in early or stay late to complete tasks like grading or lesson planning. They're fighting for higher pay amid contract negotiations. Last week, teachers in South Hadley also voted to work to rule. The Massachusetts Auditor's Office says it is catching more instances of public assistance fraud. But as Alden Bourne explains, that doesn't necessarily mean more fraud is actually occurring. Auditor Suzanne Bump says people defrauded state agencies like MassHealth and the Department of Transitional Assistance out of more than $13 million in the fiscal year that ended in June. She says that compares to a little more than $6 million the previous year. During the pandemic, agencies were hard-pressed to run all of the checks that they needed to to determine eligibility for benefits and then to also refer cases to our office. Bump says her team now has better data analytics to find potential patterns of fraud. She says while some people will pay restitution or lose access to future benefits if they can, most of the money will not be recovered. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. It's 741. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. Sunny and low 50s today, around 40 tonight. Warmer tomorrow, low 60s and sunny. Near 70 on Friday, but cloudy with a chance of rain. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 742. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. As the votes are counted across America, this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. With control of the U.S. Senate at stake, the race in Nevada. 
is too close to call at this hour. We may not know anything until Friday, when tens of thousands of mail-in ballots are expected to be counted. Republican Adam Laxalt has a razor-thin lead over the incumbent Democrat Catherine Cortez Masto. In the House race, one race has been called for a Republican in Nevada. Three Democrats are favored to hold on to their seats, but that could change. Our co-host A. Martinez is in Las Vegas and joins us now. Hey, A. Hi. You sound like you are in a place. Where are you? Yes, yes. We're in an area called Fremont Street Experience. It's an outdoor covered mall with shops, casinos, and entertainment. For those who remember the U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. This is where your pal Bono huh. and the band shot the video. Okay. And this outdoor mall borders uh, East Las Vegas. 70% of Nevada's Latino voters live here. Huh. And leading up to the election, analysts believe that their votes, or actually maybe their lack of votes, Rachel, could determine who controls the state in the U.S. Senate. So you were out visiting polling stations yesterday. What did you hear from voters? Well, much of the elections chatter here was about this perceived enthusiasm gap between Democrats and Republicans. We heard many times that Democrats were slow to engage and Republicans were all fired up. Mm -hmm. That was certainly the case for Scott Anderson. He's a Republican we met right after he voted. The southern border is a sieve. You know, it's worse than Swiss cheese. The banning of drilling and fracking and just this nonsense of, uh, of this Green New Deal. These people have to go. Anderson brought a friend with him to the polls and he said their goal was to stop the Democrats from destroying the country. Uh, what did Democrats have to say about that when you spoke with them? Yeah, well, Democratic canvassers that we spoke to felt like they had two opponents, Republicans and then voter apathy. Jose Luis Becerra did go out and vote. He was concerned about education. He brought up a theme, though, that we heard from a number of Democrats we talked to. Becerra says that when it's all said and done, he was not convinced his vote counted for much. And Becerra says, you know, that when they win, they forget what they promise. It's just like in Mexico. In Mexico, they promise many things and then they forget. Now, I also chatted with Adam, Alan Gill. He was concerned about women's rights and the economy. Those were the issues that guided how he voted. And I asked him if he thought his vote would have a direct impact on his life. Nope. I, uh, I, I vote. I've, I serve my country, but seeing it affect me personally, no. Nah, I don't. I don't see it happening. But yet, you still come out and vote. So you obviously have faith in something. Oh yeah, definitely. I always have faith in my country. But your question was, do I see it affecting me personally? No, I don't. Hmm. But he still obviously takes the responsibility of voting very seriously, even if he doesn't feel it in his own life. Did you talk with people for whom these issues would affect them in their day to day? Yeah, absolutely. Kevin Williams, he had a, a somewhat different perspective. He took a big picture view here. He's a young black man who's worried about women's reproductive rights, and he spoke to us while wearing a face mask and says he doesn't know if his vote will have an impact this time around, but he thinks of it as a bit of an investment in future elections. If I don't vote, then my community is not going to be looked at for advertisements. We're going to be looked at for their own issues the next elections. And so all this is public information. That's how the next year, the next, whatever the situation, the next campaign is going to be looking at who voted last time because they're more likely to vote again. And so I want to make sure that I'm an advocate for my, my causes as well. And just to let people know that I'm here. A sampling. In case that was tough to hear. Yeah, he's saying he wants to know that he wants everyone to know he's engaged. A sampling of voter voices from the state of Nevada and Las Vegas in particular, which is where we heard from A. Martinez, our co-host. Thanks, A.
No problem. The Nevada election could have a lot to do with who controls the United States Senate, which is still up in the air. So, too, could a senatorial election in Wisconsin, where Republican Ron Johnson has been facing re-election. And it's been a very tough campaign and a very, very close election this morning, although it appears that Johnson has the advantage. Let's go to a different Johnson, Sean Johnson of Wisconsin Public Radio. Good morning. Hi, Steve. I'm just looking at the numbers here with uh, more than two and a half million votes cast. It appears that only 30,000 votes or so separate Ron Johnson from Mandela Barnes. Very close campaign. It is very close. And oddly enough, we've gotten very used to it in the state of Wisconsin. I mean, look at the last few races that we've had for president. Uh, in 2016 and 2020, they were decided by around 21,000 votes or so. Our last race for governor in 2018 was decided by around 30,000 votes. So, yes, that's a very close race for Senator Ron Johnson. Uh, Are people going to be shocked by that this morning? Probably not. Yeah, and I guess we should just note it's not been called yet. It's not been decided. It seems to me, looking at the numbers, there's maybe another 30,000 votes outstanding in Milwaukee, Milwaukee County, which would be a heavily Democratic area. So it's conceivable that Mandela Barnes makes up that 30,000, but it's looking like kind of a long shot for him at this point. It is, yeah. I mean, as you saw the votes roll in, uh, Senator Johnson has performed uh, well where he needed to. And, you know, you've had this crossover voting in some places in Wisconsin where uh, somebody going for Ron Johnson and Democratic Governor Tony Evers. As best you can tell, why did Tony Evers do better, the Democratic governor who has won re-election? I think if you look at where Tony Evers did well, he exceeded expectations in places like Milwaukee County, in places like uh, Dane County, the home of Madison, which has become increasingly important to Democrats. If this was going to be a Republican year, those numbers would have trailed off, but uh, Democrats did especially well there. You also saw Evers do especially well in places where Republicans and where Democrats have made gains in recent years, the suburbs of Milwaukee. There was some question about whether that was going to trail off and those suburbs might swing back to Republicans this time around. They didn't. They still went Republican, but Democrats definitely made gains there. And then you saw the Republican challenger, Tim Michaels, just not make up for it in the broad swath of counties across Wisconsin, rural counties that Republicans always win. I just want to note Republicans continue to dominate the state legislature in Wisconsin. They've been widely criticized for gerrymandering themselves into what seems to be a permanent advantage in Wisconsin. And I'd like to know from you, having been around the state the last several months, how much was democracy itself part of the discussion among ordinary voters? It was toward the end when you saw Democrats really pushing that, including former President Barack Obama, reaching out to their voters and saying, hey, you've got to know that if you don't go out and vote, you could have single party control in this state and there'd be nothing you can do about it. They stressed the race for the legislature, but they really stressed also the race for governor and Tony Evers' veto power. Sean Johnson, thanks very much. Really appreciate the update. Thank you. Sean Johnson is a reporter for Wisconsin Public Radio, where we have not called the race between Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes, but Senator Johnson appears to have an advantage at this hour. Control of the United States Senate is still up in the air. Democrats have gained one seat, but several races are undecided. Control of the House also still to come. This 
is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Later today at 11 is Radio Boston, and Tiziana Deering is here to tell us what they've got for us today. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. Can you guess what we're going to talk about? Um, mm, There's maybe election results? That is the one. We will, We are definitely part of the continuing coverage for WBUR on uh, the midterms. And there's a reason for that, because actually, despite the fact that a ton of history was made here in Massachusetts mm-hmm. last night, we still have some open questions. Not all the ballot questions, for example, have been called. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the AP. So lots to talk about and tons of implications, yeah. right, with a march of change at statewide offices. Um, so Ma- Walter Wolfman, one of our reporters, will join us. We've got Susan Tracy as an analyst, former state rep herself, and Lisa Kaczynski of Politico. Um, and we'll give put some real meat on the bones of where we are at 11 a.m. and what it means for us in the months and years to come. Yeah, so important. I was also trying to see what voter turnout was like if it was um, as low as they expected. I haven't seen that yet. So I haven't seen the final numbers, but it's a great question. All right. Thank you, Tiziana. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. Thanks, Rupa. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at EasyCater.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Midterm results are still coming in this morning. Control of the U.S. House and Senate are still undecided. We do know about some state house wins that made history. Democrat Maura Healey will be Massachusetts' first female governor and the country's first openly lesbian governor. To every little girl and every young LGBTQ person out there... I hope, I hope tonight shows you that you can be whatever, whoever you want to be. There's also a new governor in the state of Arkansas. Voters there elected former Trump press secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I know it will be the honor of a lifetime to serve as Arkansas's 47th governor and the first female governor the state of Arkansas has ever She'll hold the same job that her dad did, Mike Huckabee. He had the governor's mansion for 16 years. In Maryland, Democrat Wes Moore will become that state's first black governor. The decision to get an abortion is difficult, and that decision should be made between a woman and her doctor. And an expected win in Florida, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis easily claimed a second term. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. DeSantis gets a second term while eyeing a potential run for president in 2024. Numerous Republican candidates in this year's election rejected the results of the last one. Dozens of judges and thousands of election officials from both parties affirmed Donald Trump's defeat in 2020, but some candidates this year ran on, ran on alternative facts. QAnon figures and conspiracy theorists also took prominent roles as part of the Republican coalition. So what do the election results say about them? 
New York Times Magazine contributing writer Robert Draper looks at this in his new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Mr. Draper, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. How did some of the election-denying figures that you follow fare last night? Well, in particular, I've been interested in following the races in Arizona, where a completely Trumpy slate uh, ran for statewide office, all of them endorsed by the former president. And it's very early to be um, saying this right now, Steve, we just don't know, but it's clear that it, that um, that Trumpism was not the resounding victory that the former president and others of its stripe had hoped for. The one that I'm in particular interested in is um, uh, Mark Fincham, who's running for Secretary of State, uh, has been uh, in Arizona, has been um, a, uh, a very vociferous 2020 election denier, was at the Capitol on January the 6th. He is six points behind um, his Democratic opponent right now. And so the, the open question will be, in addition to obviously, you know, how it all shakes out electorally is if indeed Fincham loses, it appears he will, will he concede? Um, he's already kind of seeded the possibility of not doing so by talking about the Marxists who are trying to deny him victory, by seeing fraud everywhere where there isn't any. So people like Fincham are still out there who are concerning um, in terms of just whether they will accept a democratically held result. And I'll just repeat again, we're just stating facts here. Dozens of judges appointed by presidents from both parties, thousands of election officials from both parties affirmed the 2020 election results. And yet 2020 also seems to have been on the ballot in the governor's race there. Carrie Lake, who talked about election corruption on the Republican side, was up against Democrat Katie Hobbs, who, if I'm not mistaken, is the existing secretary of state in Arizona and certified the election results in Arizona in 2020. Um, Lake may yet win that, but it's a lot closer than the polling suggested it would be. Much closer, and Blake, we should say, is a very, very polished candidate insofar as she has been in the media for the last two decades, uh, you know, is very good in front of the camera, while her opponent, who you're correct, is the sitting Secretary of State uh, in Arizona, Katie Hobbs, is far from polished and avoided debate, uh, debating uh, Lake, for example. And so uh, uh, you're right. Right now, that is a razor-thin lead that Hobbs um, is maintaining. Again, the same concern holds true that that uh, if she does win, but wins in a small um, uh, by a small margin, that Carrie Lake may challenge that may say that um, the, the sitting Secretary of State should have uh, removed herself from any power during this election or simply that there was fraud. Can I get you to address a fear uh, that exists among many Democrats and perhaps also some Republicans, a fear that a large part of the electorate in this country is in some way turning against democracy? You certainly can find surveys in which large numbers of people say, I wish that politicians would just do the right thing instead of what the voters tell them to do or what they think is politically popular. Um, but having surveyed the Republican Party, particularly the way that you have, do you think that a large part of it truly has turned against democracy? Well, yes, and, and as a corollary to that, a large part of the electorate has turned against um, a reality-based form of democracy and, and instead is embracing a succession of lies um, that have, I think, in part soured them on the notion of democracy. If, after all, you believe, as tens of millions of Americans do, that the 2020 election was stolen, then you believe that democracy has been weaponized against you and that it's a cheap concept and, and, and corrupted its core. And so, yes, that remains a concern. Now, it's, you know, we, we look at, as it's going to take days, probably weeks, 
to shake out the results of the 2022 midterms. And, and arguably, it is a referendum against Trumpism uh, wherever it stands. But it does not change the fact that, that the base of the Republican Party is held together by individuals who are um, consumed by these delusions that uh, January the 6th was a peaceful protest, that, elect, that Democrats cheat to win, uh, and uh, that COVID vaccines are either ineffectual or that they're killers. I mean, that, that disparity between you know, reality and what they embrace is uh, you know, a predominating concern. We've just got a few seconds here, but let's just note, although Republicans did not have the overwhelming wins they were hoping for, they still have a good chance to get the Senate. They have a very good chance to get the House. In a few seconds, what are the prospects of a Republican Congress or a part of Congress controlled by Republicans? Yeah, I mean, I think you you summed it up well. It's it's uh, it's very likely that that uh, they'll get, uh, uh, gain control of the House. Um, it is totally up for grabs right now with the Senate. We really won't know for several days. Robert Draper, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. He is a New York Times Magazine contributing writer, and he's part of our live coverage here on Morning Edition as we continue to follow the results of the 2022 midterm elections. Democrats so far have gained one seat in the Senate, but control is still at issue, and absolutely so, in the House. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. A dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. With many races yet to be called, the balance of power in the U.S. House and Senate remains in question. Meanwhile, more Healy makes history as the next governor of Massachusetts. It's Wednesday, November 9th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the voters have spoken. We examine how midterm election results are playing out across the country, including in the 36 seats for governor that were up for grabs. Also this hour, Andrea Campbell will be the first black woman to serve as Massachusetts Attorney General. Three of the four state ballot questions are still too close to call, including the so-called millionaire's tax. And there were fears about voter intimidation, vigilante poll monitors, and the potential for danger for election workers. But Election Day seems to have gone off without any major incidents. Sunny today in the 50s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Control of Congress is still a question this morning, as many races are too close to call and vote counting continues. But in Pennsylvania, Democrat John Fetterman won the race for an open U.S. Senate seat. NPR's Jeff Brady reports he defeated celebrity Dr. Mehmet Oz, whom former President Donald Trump had endorsed. At a Pittsburgh concert venue, John Fetterman ambled onto the stage wearing blue jeans and his trademark black hooded sweatshirt. Fetterman, who suffered a stroke before the primary election, said his campaign was for everybody who ever got knocked down and got back up. I'm proud of what we ran on, protecting a woman's right to choose. Raising our minimum wage, 
Fetterman will replace retiring Republican Senator Pat Toomey, which makes this result a significant win for Democrats who hope to maintain a majority in the Senate. Jeff Brady, NPR News, Pittsburgh. Meanwhile in Georgia, Republican Governor Brian Kemp won re-election, beating Democrat Stacey Abrams. It was a rematch with the same outcome of their race four years ago. And it appears the race between Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock and his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker, is headed to a runoff. Sam Greenglass from member station WABE in Atlanta has more. If the Senate hinges on Georgia again, that could certainly shake up this race. Uh, What we do know is this race was already one of the most expensive in the country. Mm -hmm. So this state would just be basically blanketed with ads beyond Thanksgiving. Sam Greenglass reporting. And in a surprise call, a surprise rather, in Colorado, Republican Congresswoman Lauren Bobet is narrowly trailing her Democratic challenger, Adam Frisch. Colorado Public Radio's Stina Sig has more. The incumbent Congresswoman told supporters Tuesday night that she still expects a victory. We are going to win because there is one conservative in this race, there is one Republican in this race, and I will represent you. Bobert, who's backed by former President Donald Trump, handily won this district in 2020. Her opponent, Adam Frisch, billed himself as a moderate Democrat. He expressed cautious optimism as he watched results come in late Tuesday night. I'm not going to offer any type of 100 percent. We won. Are we winning? Yes. Have we won? No. Colorado's District 3 hasn't elected a Democratic congressperson since 2008. For NPR News, I'm Stina Sieg in Grand Junction, Colorado. Facebook parent company Meta says it's laying off 11,000 employees, about 13 percent of its staff. This is the company faces a slew of challenges to its core business. Its stock price is down 71 percent this year. This is NPR. From WPOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Democrat Maura Healey will be the next governor of Massachusetts. Healey is the first woman elected governor of the state. She's also become the first openly lesbian governor elected in the country. In her victory speech last night, Healey reached out to those who did not support her run. I'll be a governor for everyone. And and I'll work with anyone who's up for making a difference in this state. Healy defeated Republican Jeff Deal by a 63 to 35 percent margin. Deal conceded the race last night, but urged his supporters to fight on. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown. Deal said he's proud of the race. He and his running mate, Leah Cole Allen, ran. He said they were able to highlight issues that are important to people across the state, including education, health care, energy, and the economy. For a long time, Massachusetts has been a leader in these fields, but we've become complacent and too dependent on the directives from Washington, D.C. So Leah and I talked about restoring freedom through states' rights, and we've been passionate about giving you back control from a government that has become so big that it controls virtually every aspect of our lives. Deal said that while the campaign is over, he'll continue to do all he can to advance the goals he highlighted. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. History was made in last night's race for attorney general. Democrat Andrea Campbell became the first black woman elected to the position. In her victory speech, she nodded to other big wins made by women in the state. We have shattered glass ceilings tonight, and I am thrilled, thrilled to stand on the stage. Women truly will lead Massachusetts forward, and it's about damn time. 
Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll was elected lieutenant governor. Healy and Driscoll are the first all-female ticket elected to, elected to their positions nationwide. Three out of four of the ballot questions in the state are still too close to call. As of now, results show question one, the so-called millionaire's tax, would pass, but not by much. Results on question three, which would allow stores to get more alcohol licenses, are leaning toward a no vote by 10 percent. Question four, which would allow undocumented immigrants to apply for driver's licenses, is also leaning toward approval. The only one called so far is question two. Voters approved the measure requiring dental insurers to spend most of customer premiums on patient care. In some of the other key races yesterday, Democrat Diana DiZoglio beat Republican Anthony Amore to become the next state auditor. Attleboro Mayor Paul Hero has declared victory in his contest for Bristol County Sheriff against incumbent Thomas Hodgson. And in the state house, Democrats flipped two seats held by Republicans. Those are the seats in the 1st Essex and 1st Barnstable districts. Get a complete look at the results by visiting WBUR.org on your computer or your phone. And we'll stay with Morning Edition until 10 this morning for more on the midterm elections. Right now, it's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. The Celtics will be at the Garden tonight to take on the Detroit Pistons. And in your forecast, it's going to be sunny today with a high in the lower 50s, clear overnight with temperatures in the upper 30s, sunny tomorrow, and in the 60s, we could get some rain on Friday. It's 38 degrees in Boston at 8.08. WBUR supporters include Japaigo, committed to delivering transformative health care solutions for women and families. Japaigo believes that where a person lives should not determine if they live. More at jhpiego.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The morning after the Supreme Court ruled on abortion rights this year, our colleague Leila Fadel was in Kentucky. She tried the door of a clinic that performs abortions in Louisville, and the door was already locked. Americans have debated abortion ever since, and yesterday voters in many states spoke. They upheld abortion rights in California and Vermont and Michigan. The Associated Press has yet to call the results, however, in some other states, including Montana and also Kentucky, where that clinic was. We're joined now by Kentucky Kentucky Public Radio's Divya Karthikeyan to discuss the ballot measure. Good morning. Good morning. Thank Uh, you for having me. Granting that we don't have the results yet, what were Kentuckians voting on? So this is a simple amendment on the ballot. Uh, amendment two would be adding the following language to the state constitution. It is to protect human life. Nothing in this constitution shall be construed to secure or protect a right to abortion or require the funding of abortion. 
So voting yes on this would basically say that there is no right to an abortion under state law. Voting no mean not voting no means not introducing language that says there's no right to an abortion. Um, so that is the main language on the ballot. Well, this is very interesting. Uh, I know from past reporting in Kentucky, obviously it's a red state. It's a very red state. It is a state mm-hmm. where, according to surveys, most people oppose abortion rights, which, of course, is different than the country at a whole, as a whole, where a majority of people say that they uh, oppose abortion rights at some point. Is it surprising to you that the result has not yet been decisive? Um, It is, uh, you know, at this point, since initial results are basically showing that Kentucky voters are rejecting this ballot initiative, um, I would say it's still too soon to call, and we don't know yet. It seems like the no vote is projected to win, and the uh, the amendment will be defeated. Uh, Whether it comes as a surprise, you know, it's a complicated issue, uh, not a black and white yes or no issue as well. People have conflicting ideas about abortion. Uh, they do support, you know, exceptions with, uh, regard, uh, with regard to rape and incest. And so that's gotten a lot of people, you know, on the fence about this because the amendment does not mention anything about exceptions. Do you learn anything from the vote that is so far in, for example, an urban-rural divide? Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. Um, so, most, you know, a sizable lead has come in from Louisville and Lexington, which are the major urban areas uh, and cities in um, in Kentucky. Meanwhile, rural counties um, have mostly voted on the yes side, um, which, uh, you know, does not secure uh, the right to an abortion or funding of an abortion. And so uh, we have 10 counties that are still yet to come in. The votes are still yet to come in from there. So that's going to be a real deciding factor here. But at the moment, it looks like you know, urban areas have really overwhelmingly spoken to the law side of the vote. If this measure is rejected, does that mean abortion is legal in Kentucky? Um, You know, it definitely, uh, if the amendment fails, it definitely makes the case stronger on the abortion rights side in one way, because for lawsuits that come in to litigate the current restrictions on abortion, we have a bigger law in the six-week Supreme Court is scheduled to hear arguments next week over one of the challenges. So we're expecting to know pretty soon where this stands in the state. Definitely makes um, their case stronger on the abortion rights side. Okay, a little bit hard to hear on the cell phone there, but we'll just say for those who couldn't quite follow, this is going to be litigated further in the courts. Divya Karthikeyan of Kentucky Public Radio, thanks so much. Thank you. We turn now to LaFonza Butler. She's the president of Emily's List, an organization whose mission is to elect Democratic pro-choice women into office. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start by asking your reaction to the situation in Kentucky with that amendment. Is is this, even though it's too close to call, did you expect that? Look, I think voters in Kentucky are still voting, um, and, and their or their I'm sorry, their votes are still being counted, and so we don't want to get too far uh, ahead of those counts. But I think um, it is clear that abortion was on the ballot in um, states all across the country, and that voters are making it clear that um, this is a decision that should be made between a woman and her doctor. And I'm not. Uh, surprised by the will of the American people showing up um, in places like Kentucky. I think the poll after poll has shown that uh, this is a position and a freedom that should be protected, um, that the majority of Americans feel uh, that this is a freedom that should be protected. Explain the amendment that has passed in Michigan and how you characterize that. Well, 
I want to um, the uh, the amendment in Michigan was uh, to codify the protections uh, for abortion, so, uh, for abortion care in uh, in, in its const- state constitution, uh, and you know having just been in Michigan just days before uh, election day, um, the energy there was really strong. The uh, fact that the his, a historic number of uh, signatures were gathered to put that measure on the ballot gave me all the confidence in the world. And I think the women that were elected in Michigan, the Democratic pro-choice women that were elected in Michigan were another yet uh, another opportunity where the voters in Michigan were making it clear that this was a right that they wanted protected, whether it was the election of Governor Whitmer um, or the re-election uh, of Attorney General Nessel, who had uh, made commitment on, on how she would uh, not enforce um, the 1931 trigger law, if the amendment were not to pass. I think uh, Michiganders um, have made it clear um, in many ways, but at the ballot, that this is a freedom that is essential uh, to their dignity and to their future. So it's part of your job to pay close attention to how congressional districts are drawn. Uh, how disadvantaged do you think Democrats were because of redistricting in some states? Well, look, it's clear um, that there were uh, some states, uh, Florida in particular, um, where there was um, a real intention uh, to gerrymander districts to um, ensure that Republicans were going to be gaining seats. I think the Republican Party was very clear about that. Governor DeSantis um, really forced his way into what traditionally was a legislative process where uh, negotiations had already happened between the Republican uh, side of the legislature and the Democrats. And time after time, Governor DeSantis sent them back until they accepted his map, um, which which surely drew um, lines uh, to ensure that more Republicans were um, guaranteed to or more likely to be elected in certain districts in Florida. And we saw that um, in states around, in some other states around the country. But um, I think that you know, what is um, important to note in this moment is that votes are still being counted and neither party um, has been uh, declared um, in the majority of either chamber. And we should um, respect the vote of the American people and allow those votes to be counted. So as the president of Emily's List, let me ask you this. I mean, there was a lot of animation, we should say. The Democratic base was really fired up after the Dobbs decision in the summer. And we know that it was one issue that Democrats in particular were voting on, not the only one. Uh, inflation was top of mind for, for people in both parties. Where does your attention turn now, now that the midterm elections are over, you were placing a lot of emphasis on abortion? Where do you go from here? Look, at, at Emlessness, as you noted, we our work is to focus on um, electing Democratic pro-choice women. We want to stay focused on this election and making sure um, that this election is, uh, that is one that where the will of the majority of the American people is, uh, is respected. And, and then we start to prepare for elections that are coming up in 2023 and 2024 and ensuring that we're working across communities to recruit, um, train and prepare um, authentic candidates who are Democratic okay. pro-choice women who are ready to run and protect that right. LaFonza Butler of Emily's List. Thank you. Thank you.
Just to review where we're at here, neither the House nor the Senate is decided today. This is a midterm election where the party out of power customarily gains seats. It would appear that Republicans are still in position to do that. They still have a good chance to capture the House. Mm. They still have at least an even chance or near an even chance of capturing the Senate. Enough races are undecided that we do not know, but Republicans did not have the big night that was widely expected of them. Let's discuss this with Domenico Montanaro and Don Gagne, two of our most senior political correspondents and editors. Gentlemen, good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we were just hearing about abortion, Domenico. Is it clear to you that that turned out to be a big factor in this voting? We were talking uh, about Kentucky uh, there, and uh, you know, I, I do think that this has been a key issue. Obviously, it's been a huge motivator. We've seen uh, that that Democratic ads on this in the last few weeks spiked, went through the roof, um, and that's been a big, uh, obvious motivator for them. And I think in the data, what you can see is that. Uh, in a place like Pennsylvania, abortion rights uh, kind of spiked, was the top issue for some voters, according to the exit polls that are conducted for some of the other uh, news outlets. Uh, and when it comes to these ballot initiatives, all four that were on the ballot went the direction of or are leaning in the direction of uh, the pro-abortion rights side, aside from the one in Kentucky that hasn't been decided yet, but again, leaning toward the Democrats. Don Gagne, as someone who's spoken with thousands and thousands and thousands <laughs> of voters over the years, what stands out to you in the results we know so far? You know, I'm still focused on Pennsylvania and how John Fetterman was able to eke out that narrow win. And it's interesting. Uh, Dr. Oz was a Donald Trump endorsed candidate who never fully energized the base. In in town after town, I would talk to voters and they would say, uh, I don't know if he's conservative enough. Uh, I'm not sure why Trump endorsed him. Uh, you don't know if that is going to translate into a lack of votes, but it appears he didn't win as big as he needed to win in the places he needed to win. And it's amazing. You think people think about Pennsylvania as two big Democratic cities with a Republican rural area, but it seems that Fetterman improved Democrats' performance in the rural areas as well. That's right. And he campaigned like crazy across those small towns in rural Pennsylvania. We'll continue hearing through this hour from Don Ga Don Gagne and Domenico Montanaro as we continue to bring you results from the 2022 midterms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Morning Edition will be with you through 10 a.m. for more coverage and analysis of the midterm election. And you can always get the latest information at WBUR.org. Up next, how Gen Z voted. Congress will get its first member of that generation with 25-year-old Democrat Maxwell Frost. It's 820. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this Thanksgiving. Donate at GBFB.org slash WBUR. I'm Robin Young. The Supreme Court will hear a case that may change the way adoptions of Native American children are handled under the Indian Child Welfare Act. When a Native American child is available for adoption, priority must be given to tribal members but a white foster family is fighting that. Next time, here and now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny and low 50s today, mostly clear tonight and around 40. Tomorrow, sunny and in the lower 60s. There's a chance of rain on Friday, but we'll have a high near 70. It's 38 degrees in Boston at 821.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Netflix, presenting Is That Black Enough for You? From writer and director Elvis Mitchell comes a love letter to black cinema of the 70s, celebrating the films and talent that changed the game. On Netflix, November 11th. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. At uma.com slash NPR. And from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft, used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Young voters are important to both political parties, Democrats and Republicans. Two years ago, voters under the age of 30 turned out in record numbers to help Joe Biden defeat Donald Trump. What resonated with young voters this time around? We are joined by Jack Lobel. He's the deputy communications director for a group called Voters of Tomorrow. It's a Gen Z-led organization focused on mobilizing young voters and electing more Democrats. Thanks so much for being here, Jack. Thank you for having me. You voted for the first time this year, I understand. How'd that feel? I did, it felt great. You know, I've been, I've been an advocate and I've been an organizer and I've been a strategist, but it really felt great to, to be a voter as well and to make my voice heard at the ballot box. So we'll broaden it out to talk about um, the demographic as a whole, but what issues helped you make your choices? I think that Gen Z is uniquely connected. You know, in, in a lot of age groups, we saw that, um, you, you know, voters in certain states voted in, in a certain way. Uh, but Gen Z is connected. We feel empathy for our generation and, and members of our generation in other states. So, you know, I, I live in New York where we're lucky to have abortion rights enshrined in our constitution, but I voted because, uh, you know, my peers in other states do not have those same rights. I voted because although in New York we have uh, gun violence restrictions that keep us safe, my peers in other states don't have those rights. So I voted to for, for democracy. Uh, I voted for abortion rights. I voted for our future. So when you were out trying to galvanize support uh, for largely Democratic candidates. What were the issues that were top of mind for other young voters you talked to? Voters of Tomorrow has been doing a lot of polling, and we saw that abortion was certainly a top issue. I think young voters recognize that when Roe fell, it, it may have been the first of, of many rights to fall. And uh, we are all about progress. We are about the future. We are about equity. And that I think that really summarizes uh, Gen Z. But the far right is is trying to attack us. They're trying to restrict our rights. And they're trying to take us back in time. We we want to go forward. Uh, so we're, we, you know, we're focusing on abortion rights. We're focusing on our ability to build a better future. Economic issues are hitting young people very hard. Uh, you know, we see that the rising cost of health care, of housing, of, of uh, education. We want to build a better future for ourselves. We want to build a, a better future for our families as much as anyone. And we have a very big stake in our future. And, and you know, so we were all focused on, on progress. I realize that I am about to pivot into the future, but is Joe Biden the candidate for Gen Z? Look, I think that President Biden and, and the Democratic Party have shown that they are uh, fighting for Gen Z on a lot of different issues, and they've shown their ability to deliver. Uh, they, you know, they, they passed the single largest investment in, in climate change history. They, in, in climate change in history, uh, they, they passed historic investments in HBCUs and community colleges. Uh, they are canceling large amounts of student debt. 
and, and pardoning anyone for, for simple marijuana possession. I think those are things that young voters largely support. Uh, and, and, you know, we want to see more sustained outreach, though. I think that's really how the Democrats keep this momentum going through 2024. Have they not? I mean, has the Demo Democratic Party let you down in terms of the level of outreach to young voters? I think that we saw... We saw this victory uh, last night because of the work of young organizers. I think that Democrats are, are doing a lot of good things. They have a lot to show, but they're, they need support on the showing front. That's where young organizers stepped in. We know Gen Z voters because we are Gen Z voters. And that's why our work at Voters of Tomorrow is so important, connecting with our peers. Uh, you know, the youth vote has always been an afterthought. Young people have always been left out of the conversation. We're starting to see that change now. Okay. But for young voters, yeah. Yeah. Jack Lobel is the Deputy Communications Director for Voters of Tomorrow. Thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. I appreciate it. The results of this election are, of course, measured in numbers, and we can see some of them here at NPR.org. On the Senate side, Democrats so far have gained one seat. They have at least 48 seats, along with independents, 47 for Republicans, and a handful still undecided, the Senate undecided. On the House side, Republicans have 199 seats wrapped up and still a very good chance to get to that 218, which would be the majority, but they're not there. Our senior uh, political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro, has been following following this. And Domenico, I think it, I mean, if we'd woken up to the news that Republicans had already captured the House, I don't think we would have been terribly surprised. They're not there. They're not. And, you know, it is quite surprising to see just how much Democrats have stemmed the Republican tide. They, Republicans still are on track, it appears, to take the House, mm -hmm. but with a very slim majority, potentially. I mean, I've just had to check my numbers multiple times because I just kind of can't, uh, quite understand that this is or see that this is the case figure I'm missing things but uh, there are only 17 races right now where Republicans are either leading or have already been declared the winners and there are 10 Democratic seats where they have um, where they've won or been declared uh, the, or they're leading so you're looking at a potential here for a net of a Republican uh, plus seven. Uh, I mean, it could get higher than that to potentially maybe nine I, I, or ten. I just want to disentangle those numbers a bit. A, a bit. You're yeah. saying that Republicans would, would govern the House, but with a majority of only two, three, four votes more than the Democrats have. That's, that is what it appears to be right now. I mean, things are still fluid, so you could see some of these other numbers change. But I mean, right now it's re Republicans plus two, uh, and they could get up to maybe plus nine, plus 10. But that's, again, like you said, a four seat majority or so. And what does that mean for Kevin McCarthy, the man who wants to be Speaker of the House? There's going to be a lot of second guessing about his leadership, a lot of finger pointing at Donald Trump and Donald Trump probably finger pointing at Kevin McCarthy. There's a lot going on behind the scenes right now about yeah. what's happening in that Republican leadership And a race. super challenge for governing if McCarthy does become Speaker. Don Gagne is also with us. Uh, what did the Donald Trump endorsement do for Republicans last night? You know, he got a couple of significant wins. J.D. Vance in Ohio and Ted Budd in the Senate. But after that, you know, those were both Republican holds. After that, you look at places like Pennsylvania uh, and Georgia, where Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker were very much creations of Donald Trump in this particular uh, this particular election. Uh, again, Oz lost. We don't know what's happening with Walker yet, but those might have been places that would have been solid Republican 
Republican pickups uh, with a different candidate. Yep. Could yet be a runoff in Georgia. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Ahead of yesterday's election, some Republicans tried to stir up fears of election fraud. Coming up on Morning Edition, a look at whether any of those unfounded predictions came close to reality. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by University of New England, Maine's largest private university, on campuses in Portland and coastal Biddeford, and online, une.edu. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Control of Congress come January is still undecided. Votes continue to be counted in dozens of House races and several Senate contests. Senate races in Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, and Georgia remain too close to call. Georgia's Senate contest could move to a December runoff. In Pennsylvania, Democrat John Fetterman won the state's open Senate seat. He defeated Republican Mehmet Oz in one of the country's closely watched Senate races. In Ohio, Republican J.D. Vance defeated Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan in that state's Senate contest. Among the gubernatorial races, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis won re-election, as did fellow Republican Governor Greg Abbott in Texas. In Georgia, Brian Kemp won another term in office. The Republican defeated Democrat Stacey Abrams in a rematch of their 2018 contest. Abrams spoke to supporters last night in Atlanta. I see in this crowd women and men who have been a part of this journey since I put my name on a ballot in 2006. And while I may not have crossed the finish line, that does not mean we will ever stop running for a better Georgia. In Maryland, Wes Moore was elected as the state's first black governor. Tony Evers won re-election in Wisconsin. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Maura Healey will be the next governor of Massachusetts. She defeated Republican Jeff Deal by a wide margin in yesterday's election. Healey is the first woman elected governor of the state. She'll also be the first openly lesbian elected governor in the country. In her victory speech last night, Healey vowed to address the higher costs of living and improvements needed in transportation and education. The people of Massachusetts tonight have given us a historic opportunity and a mandate to act. So we're going to ignore the noise. We're going to focus every day on making a positive difference in people's lives. Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll will become the state's next lieutenant governor. Andrea Campbell was elected attorney general. She'll be the first black woman to serve in that post. Right now, three of the state's four ballot questions remain too close to call. That includes the so-called millionaire's tax and the decision whether to repeal a new law allowing anyone to apply for a driver's license regardless of their immigration status. The only one that's called right now is question two. Voters approved a measure requiring dental insurance companies to spend a certain amount on patient care. All nine members of the state's congressional delegation were re-elected. Only eight of the nine Democratic incumbents faced Republican opposition. 
In New Hampshire, Republican Governor Chris Sununu won re-election to serve a fourth term. He beat Democrat Tom Sherman by nearly 15 percentage points. Democratic U.S. Senator Maggie Hassan has held on to her seat. She beat Republican challenger Don Bolduck. Democratic Congressman Chris Pappas and Congresswoman Anne McLean Custer both won their re-election bids. For more results from across New England, check out WBUR.org. And a reminder that Morning Edition will be with you through 10 this morning for more analysis of the midterm elections. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College. Committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring. Online.merrimack.edu. Tonight at the Garden, it's the Celtics against the Detroit Pistons. Through 10 games so far this season, the Seas are 7-3. and three. In your forecast, clear skies and low 50s today. Still clear tonight, and it'll fall to around 40. Sunny again tomorrow in the low 60s. And then we end the week with a cloudy day near 70 with a chance of rain. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Republicans made some gains in this midterm election. They may yet capture the House or Senate or both, but they were denied the big wins many had expected, even though in many cases Republicans were the ones who made the rules for this election. In Georgia and many other states, Republicans passed election law changes in a direct and explicit response to the 2020 election, which their candidate lost. Professor Scott Schroffnagel is a political science professor at Northern Illinois University. He specializes in election law. Welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Do you think that the voting laws passed over the past couple of years had any effect on the results we're seeing now? Well, you know, we had 11 states who passed uh, only restrictions, uh, and among them were Florida and Texas, uh, Arizona as well. And so these are some states that, you know, have in recent election cycles been relatively mixed in terms of their partisan uh, makeup, not Texas, but Arizona and Florida. And uh, and in both cases, um, uh, you know, uh, it could very well be that these election law changes have had an effect. Well, of course, we don't want to speculate too much, but let's talk about two different cases that seem a little different to me. One of them is Florida, where there were changes in election laws and also some dramatic gestures by Governor Ron DeSantis, for example, arranging the arrest of people for voter fraud if they attempted to vote while they were uh, convicted of a felony, which is something that many people believed they had received the right to do from a referendum several years back. Did that shape the election and who even felt comfortable voting? Well, that's the thing, is the actual number of people that that prevents uh, from voting is is really a function of, you know, sort of uh, intimidation, right? So so it's not that uh, there's going to be that many people voting fraudulently that are going to get caught or anything like that, but presumably the election police force could discourage some people from, uh, from you know, turning out to vote. Uh, to begin with. I feel like it is a different story, though, in Georgia, where Republicans 
Uh, some were very upset about Donald Trump losing Georgia, which was affirmed by election officials from both parties, and Donald Trump losing the presidential election, which was affirmed by election officials and courts from both parties. But some people were upset. They proposed changes to the voting laws. There was an intensive debate, and it seems like the final version of that law was far less dramatic uh, and in some cases uncontroversial compared to what had been proposed at the beginning. Is it possible that did not have very much effect in the end? Well, that's right. You know, what's interesting is both Florida and Georgia proposed much more restrictions than what ultimately passed. And I think in part because, you know, the word had got out that, you know, voting early and voting um, by mail and, you know, absentee voting and so forth does not have a obvious partisan advantage. You know, Republicans like to vote early, too. And uh, and so uh, once, you know, for instance, in 2020, we know that where voting was easier on average, Trump actually does better than he had performed in 2016. So, you know, we made voting easier in 2020 as a result of the pandemic. Voter turnout spikes up. And, and Trump does better in those states that were more liberal in making voting easier. Um, you know, a real classic example was Iowa, where... Uh, Trump does better. Joni Ernst, I don't know if you remember, wins the Senate seat going away. They pick up a couple of House seats. And then Republicans went out of the way to mo make voting more difficult, uh, sort of shooting themselves in the foot, if you will. And so there's that, that um, you know, and of course, Virginia, another state where they made it easier to vote, and the Republicans picked up the governor's race in 2021. So, so making voting easier does not have obvious partisan uh, implications. And it's, and it's pretty clear that... Uh, uh, Georgia and Florida legislators picked up on that. Professor Scott Schroffnagel, a political science professor at Northern Illinois University, thanks so much. Sure. Happy to be here. We're now going to bring in Republican, Republican strategist Scott Jennings, a frequent guest on this program, to talk more about these midterm election results. Hey, Scott. Hey, good morning. Okay, big question here. Republicans had been talking big about overwhelming victories in this year's midterm election that is not materializing are you surprised uh i am surprised about the house uh i was more bullish on the house i'm not candidly surprised about the senate you know it always felt like it was going to come down to the big three pennsylvania georgia nevada mm -hmm. where do we sit today lost pennsylvania georgia probably heading to a runoff and still counting votes in nevada so there's you know there's still a narrow path for the republicans uh but uh certainly in some of the other states where Republicans had gotten irrationally exuberant uh, in October, like Washington and Colorado and others, uh, New Hampshire, it just uh, it just did not come together. So let's talk about why, because uh, President Biden's approval rating well below 50 percent and historically the party out of power wins and wins by a lot often. So what do you think is to account for the Republicans underperformance? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, first of all, um, it, it, it appears to me, and again, there's lots of numbers left to crunch, that independent voters did not behave as you would expect. As you pointed out, you know, they were in a sour mood, uh, didn't particularly like Biden, thought his policies were not helping the country, thinks the economy is off on the wrong track, pessimistic about that. And yet, in many cases, uh, they just didn't go Republican. And a lot of uh, GOP strategists and uh, insiders today are saying things like, we have a Trump problem. Uh, Donald Trump put his imprint on this election by handpicking a lot of candidates mm -hmm. who really struggled. 
Uh, he struggled against Biden in 2020. His candidates struggled against uh, Biden's party in 2022. As I look at it, that's the first thing I see is the Republican Party has problems with independent voters uh, who are waiting to see if this party will move on from Donald Trump or will, for, for, for the foreseeable future, uh, be saddled with his imprint. So, I mean, that's that's kind of a big problem for Republicans. Donald Trump, for all intents and purposes, is still the leader of the Republican Party. If his handpicked candidates did not do well in these elections, I mean, what does that portend for for an, an upcoming presidential run from him? And what does it mean for Ron DeSantis? Well, yeah, well, that, that's where I was headed next was the big bright spot for Republicans was Florida, where Ron DeSantis absolutely crushed Charlie Chris by 20 points. And you look at the coalition he put together, uh, Latino voters uh, all over the state working class voters, white collar suburban voters, rural voters. I mean, he, he showed the way. And by the way, I should also say Brian Kemp in Georgia did as well. And Glenn, Glenn Youngkin in Virginia did last year. So there's, there's a future for the Republican Party where it can put together a national majority. But it's going to be done by people who don't have these limiting principles like Donald Trump and is likely to be done by people like DeSantis. So as he thinks about starting a primary against Trump, to me, he had a big springboard last night and a great argument to make to Republicans. Republican strategist Scott Jennings, we appreciate your time, Scott. Thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. We'll have an extra hour of Morning Edition today for more on the midterm elections. Up next, WBUR's Yasmin Ammer reviews what's known so far about how Massachusetts voters responded to four state ballot questions. Right now, three of those questions remain too close to call. In your forecast, sunny and low 50s today, around 40 tonight, warmer tomorrow, low 60s and sunny, near 70 on Friday, but cloudy with a chance of rain. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series. Kirill Petrenko makes his Boston debut as music director of the Berliner Philharmoniker, November 13th at Symphony Hall, CelebritySeries.org. Now, in business news, it remains unclear how today's anticipated layoffs at Meta will affect the company's Boston-area workers. The owner of Facebook announced this morning it is laying off 11,000 people. That's about 13 percent of its workforce. Over 200 people were employed at Facebook's Kendall Square office as of last year. Massachusetts' largest offshore wind project is asking for more time to commit to moving forward with its contract. Commonwealth Wind was supposed to respond to the state by today. It now wants to wait until Monday. The company has argued that global economic conditions mean the agreement is no longer viable. Kelly's Roast Beef is expanding into Worcester. It plans a new location at the site of the former Volvo dealership on Gold Star Boulevard. The Telegram and Gazette reports the restaurant will be part of a larger retail development slated to open by 2024. It'll be the fourth Kelly's location in the state. It's 844. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. 
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. There were four questions on the ballot for Massachusetts voters this year, and right now three of those questions remain too close to call. For a breakdown of what we know and what we're still waiting to know, we're joined by WBUR's Yasmin Ammer. Good morning, Yasmin. Good morning, Rupa. So let's start with what we do know this morning, and that's the result of ballot question two, right? So that's the ballot question that asked voters about uh, whether or not they want to require dental insurance companies to spend a certain amount on patient care. So that means at least 83 cents of every dollar uh, paid in premiums will go to things like, uh, you know, cleaning your teeth. The Associated Press reports that question passed with the yes side getting 71 percent of the vote. The no side only got 29 percent. Okay, so that's the question that's settled. Can you take us through the ones that haven't been settled so far? The really big one is question one. So that's the so-called millionaire's tax. A yes vote on that question would impose a 4% surtax on any portion of income that's above $1 million. And right now, the yes side is ahead by four points. That's with about uh, more than 80% of the precincts counted. What have you been hearing from voters on this question? So I went to poll places in Charlestown and East Boston. And most of the people I spoke to there supported it. Actually, those results in Boston and closely surrounding cities are in, and they did vote for this amendment. So one of those people that I spoke to is George Tagg. He owns a small consulting company. And if this amendment passes, his taxes will go up. But he still voted yes because he thinks the proposed tax is good overall for business. It's about businesses supporting what they're using. Businesses are using the roads all the time. Um, And we need to support our local community too and make sure that that we have a strong workforce for businesses to uh, be able to relocate here and stay here. Ballot question four is also still undecided. That's the one involving driver's licenses, right? Yep. So a yes vote on that question would keep a state law that will allow anyone to apply for a driver's license regardless of their immigration status. A no vote would repeal the law. And that was a law that was approved by state lawmakers last summer. So right now, the yes side leads by about seven percentage points. And voters who I spoke to were mixed on this one. Opponents who said no said this is essentially rewarding people for being in the U.S. illegally. But supporters like Portia Pedro of East Boston says it makes roads safer. I just think it's really important for people to be able to have driver's licenses. We know we have millions of people in the country who are trying to go through the system to get their paperwork. And without them being able to have licenses and interact in that way, it just creates things that are really unsafe um, and makes it so that if somebody gets in an accident, they're probably more tempted to leave. Okay, and what's left? Question three. Yep, that's the one that would expand how many state alcohol licenses a store can have. So, so far, it looks like it might be defeated. The no side is up by 10 percentage points right now, but it has not been officially called by the Associated Press. WBOR reporter Yasmin Ammer, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Rupa.
Edition is going to be with you here on WBUR through 10 today to keep you up to date on the latest results. And you can always get those at WBUR.org. Coming up at noon today, it's here and now. And Peter O'Dowd is here to fill us in about what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Peter. You're in Arizona, right? Lots to talk about there today. I am. It's such an interesting place uh, in Arizona to follow the election because... Uh, well, first of all, only 67% of the vote approximately is in for the big races. Mm. Uh, and, and a lot of the early ballots came in, the early voters came in heavily in favor of the Democrats. So it looks really good for Mark Kelly and the governor if you're a Democrat. But on the other hand, there's a lot of ballots, election day ballots out there to be counted in the Phoenix area where mm-hmm. most of the voters live. And so those are coming back in favor of Republicans. It'll be a while. I think we're going to get another drop of, of ballots later today, maybe in the evening, a big drop. But I still I think even then we're not going to know. Um, so we're going to be covering Arizona. We'll be covering Florida, Nevada, Georgia. So many interesting races. And we do expect there's going to be developments and news breaking throughout the day. Um, so we're going to do our best to keep people up to date as all that information rolls in. Sounds great. Thank you, Peter. You're welcome. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering internet service over a gig? Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall. HandelandHyden.org, and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities, essential for healthy democracy, KnightFoundation.org. Americans went to the polls yesterday moved by a range of issues. Issues like protecting voting rights, preventing election deniers, and calling out those who are responsible for January 6th. I'm going to say safety, border control, and the economy concern me. We'll bring you the latest on election results, news and analysis this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Low 50s today under sunny skies, clear tonight and around 40. Low 60s tomorrow and sunny again. You're 70 for Veterans Day, but cloudy and with a chance of showers. It's 40 degrees now in Boston at 8.51. Financial markets droop a bit as the ballots get counted. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And by ReliaQuest, protecting the largest companies against cyber attacks. ReliaQuest combines OpenXDR technology with security expertise to make security possible. ReliaQuest.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Who will control each House of Congress is still not an answerable question right now, and how that question gets answered will define how the country responds to inflation and the possible recession that some predict could happen sometime after a new Congress is seated. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer joins me now with some scenarios. Nancy, first let's talk about the status quo. What happens if Democrats were to stay in charge of both houses of Congress? Well, Democrats could be expected to try to pass more parts of President Biden's Build Back Better Act, and that could include things like an extension of the child tax credit. But some economists say government spending has fed inflation. And how might that affect the wider economy? 
Well, this kind of government stimulus could be very helpful if there were a recession next year and the economy needed some help. It is harder to get stimulus packages through a divided government. All right. But let's look at that scenario. What happens if Republicans take control of one or both chambers of Congress, which is a very much a a live possibility this morning? Yeah, they've talked about making the 2017 tax cuts permanent. Right now, they're scheduled to expire in 2025. Of course, even if Republicans pass legislation, President Biden could veto it. Republicans could also try to attach riders to any measures to raise or suspend the debt limit. They've talked about doing that to claw back increased funding for the IRS. I talked to Dave Camp about this. He's a former member of Congress, a Republican and former chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. He says Republicans have to be careful if they try this. And in the past, uh, trying to leverage that debt limit has not been really a successful um, endeavor for Republicans. And David, that's because in the past, when Republicans have tried this, it's led to a government shutdown, which was mostly blamed on them. Nancy Marshall-Genzer in Washington, thank you. Big spending on state ballot initiatives does not always pay off, with a vivid case to report this morning from California. At the same time, voters in Arizona have approved an initiative to make people and corporations who spend big on campaigns say their names. Marketplace's Nova Safo has that. In California, campaign spending on a pair of related ballot initiatives set a new record. $600 million on competing efforts to legalize sports gambling in the state and tap into a potentially billion-dollar market. Proposition 26 would have allowed sports betting at tribal casinos and horse tracks. It lost by a big margin. The competing measure, Proposition 27, would have allowed mobile and online sports betting. Nearly $400 million was spent for and against that proposition alone, and more than 80% of California voters rejected it. Supporters, including rideshare company Lyft, spent some $45 million on another measure to tax the state's highest earners to make way for more electric cars. But voters didn't buy it, siding with the state's governor, Gavin Newsom, who called it a giveaway to rideshare companies. And in Arizona, Proposition 211 aimed to shine a light on dark money to make political nonprofits that gather large sums disclose their donors in certain circumstances. The measure passed overwhelmingly. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. Shortly before 9 Eastern time, we cannot tell you which party will control the House or the Senate. That has market players taking some money off the table. Dow and S&P futures are down four-tenths percent. The 10-year interest rate, pretty steady, 4.15 percent. But crypto is crashing again with Bitcoin down 15 percent since the start of the week, down 10 percent today. This with a big cryptocurrency exchange called FTX at the edge of collapse. After clients smelling failure wanted their money back all at once, a competitor, Binance, has tentatively agreed to bail out FTX, but it is not a blank check. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Avalara. Business owners have worries. Automating sales tax with Avalara helps take the worry out of things like changing tax rates or filing returns. Learn how Avalara can help take the worry out of tax compliance at avalara.com. And by Fidelity Wealth Management, helping create plans for a client's full financial picture. Fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Facebook parent company Meta this morning said it's laying off 13% of its staff, about 11,000 people worldwide. Now, you can add this to the list of big tech companies cutting jobs, Twitter, Lyft, Stripe, and Salesforce. 
have also announced cuts, and some workers aren't just losing their jobs. They could lose their right to stay in the U.S. Marketplace's Megan McCarty-Carino reports. For decades, the tech industry has relied heavily on H-1Bs, a guest worker visa for immigrants with specialized skills that's usually good for three years. But when H-1B holders are laid off, they have 60 days to basically find a new job or leave the country. I mean, what does that do to a person? Can you imagine? Ajay Manchanda knows the feeling. He's now a permanent resident, but was laid off three times while on an H-1B after attending school here and then working for almost a decade. You spent 10 years building a life and now you have 60 days to sell your house, to sell your car, to get your kids out of school and leave the country. Manchanda was lucky. He was able to find a new employer to sponsor his visa each time he was laid off. But if someone can't do that, their options are limited, says Sophie Alcorn, an immigration attorney in Silicon Valley. It is really scary. People are freaking out. She says some immigrants who have been laid off could apply for permanent residency, but there's a huge backlog of applications. It's especially hard for Indian immigrants who make up about three quarters of H-1B holders. Some companies offer to help laid off workers apply for other visas, says attorney Matthew Dunn, who represents employers of foreign workers. They do look to find you know, any strategy that would work for them, can they switch to a visitor status? Could they go on their spouse's dependent status? But it's the uncertainty of situations like this that could make the U.S. less attractive to immigrant workers, says Gaurav Kana, an economist at UC San Diego. But it's doing it essentially directing this kind of global talent to other countries. Countries like Canada, which Kana says has made its immigration policy friendlier to foreign tech workers. I'm Megan McCarty-Carino for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm David Brancaccio. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stick with Morning Edition for another hour as we bring you results and analysis for the midterm election. Weather-wise, it's going to be sunny today in the low 50s. Right now, it's 41 degrees in Boston, and it's almost 9 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And Bass, Barry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.